Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I just said, we've entered into chapter 18. Now, chapter 18 of John's Gospel starts out with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is spending some time with his father in prayer before his crucifixion. The time is roughly 3.30 in the morning at this point, which means we are five and a half hours from the cross. Now, in our last study, we saw how Judas showed up with over 600 Roman soldiers and temple police, all carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons to arrest this dangerous criminal-slash-revolutionary called Jesus of Nazareth. So here they are with their torches and clubs ready to arrest Jesus. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which, which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, guys, this would be the first of two trials that Jesus would endure that morning before being crucified. The first one would be a religious trial and the second a civil trial. The first one took place before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. The second one would take place before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. If we combine the accounts from all four Gospels, we learn that there were uh, two trials and that each trial had three phases to it. We'll see that as we go. John's account... Um, gives us an insight into the first part of the religious trial. Um, John's portion of the trial, um, where, where he uh, uh, brings up the religious trial in uh, his gospel, John's gospel, the trial shows that Jesus was first brought to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was recognized by the Jewish people as the rightful high priest, the rightful high priest. Matthew begins with the second phase of the religious trial at the home of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. How was he the official high priest? Well, he was appointed by the Roman government. Now, the Sanhedrin was assembled at his house. This was his house, not the temple. Uh, so this is, was at the house of Caiaphas. They're trying to keep it kind of low-key. They want to convict Jesus of a capital offense, but they want to do it quietly because he's still very popular among the people. So they want to kind of keep it on the QT. But let me just say this, guys, before we go any farther. This was a kangaroo court, if there was a kangaroo court. You know, it's almost like if you look up kangaroo court in the dictionary, the Sanhedrin would be there. If it was that bad. It was that bad. Um, because every rule they had established with regard to providing a person a fair trial, they violated. 
First of all, they didn't give Jesus an opportunity to prepare a defense, but rushed him through a mock trial, having already decided he was guilty, uh, thus denying him any semblance of a um, any semblance of justice. They were not supposed to meet at night, nor during any of the Jewish feasts. They broke both of those. They were not supposed to bribe witnesses to commit perjury. They did that. A death verdict was not to be carried out until a night had passed. They wanted to rush Jesus to the cross just as soon as they could. And finally, they accused, the accused was not to testify against himself. At one point, the high priest got frustrated and said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ. And under now an oath, he had to answer. Um, but it, it goes on and on. There have been whole books written how that everything about this trial was illegal. Okay, illegal. So let's pick it up. First of all, looking at the religious trial of Jesus. And again, that starts, uh, started with uh, Annas. Again, verse 13. And they led him, Jesus, away to Annas first. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Again, John tells us they brought him, Jesus, to Annas, who was the legitimate high priest. Now, guys, at this point, let me provide you with a little background so that you have a better grasp on what's going on here. And I told first service because I was just laying groundwork, 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 history, background. And at one point, I think people's eyes were glazing over a little bit. I said, hang in there. You got to lay the groundwork before you get, you know, you know, it's like, pastor, just get on with it. I will, but we have to lay a little groundwork, okay? So bear with me. But um, Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD and a member of the sect of Judaism known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were liberals and materialists. They didn't believe in angels, spirits, miracles, immortality. They didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. All right. They were loyal to the Roman government. Why? Because Rome was in power and they craved power. They were supposed to be religious leaders, godly men. They were neither. Uh, they were religious leaders, not in the eyes of God, though. But the, the fact about it was that uh, they gave the law of God lip service, but they really didn't care about rabbinic traditions, the law of Moses. They gave it lip service, and if um, you know they needed uh, it in some way to, to, to gain their objective, they'd come off all religious and so on. But honestly, uh, they were not religious men. They were materialists, and they would do whatever it took to gain power and to... Uh, to uh, gain their main objective, which was always to line their pockets with money. All right? It was Annas and the Sadducees that ran the very lucrative business of the temple concessions in Jesus' day. What were they? The temple concessions consisted of selling animals for sacrifice and, changing, and the changing of money. These concessions became a major source of revenue for these men, you know, lining their pockets. A uh, major source of revenue during the main Jewish feasts of the year. There were three, seven altogether, Leviticus 23 tells us. But there were three main ones, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in early summer, and then tabernacles in the fall. 
among the three main feasts, the Pentec- uh, excuse me, Passover was the most, you know, cherished. They, that was the, the, the high point of the year, okay? And um, so Passover became a very uh, big time for them to make a lot of money on these temple concessions. Let me just explain the temple concessions a little bit so you understand what's going on. First of all, the animal sellers. At Passover time, Jews from all over the known world would converge on the city of Jerusalem, uh, upwards of two million pilgrims. Some of them had never been to Jerusalem their entire life. In fact, some of them, it was a lifelong dream to come to Jerusalem at least once um, before they died. Many of them couldn't afford it, right? So many of these pilgrims had never been to Jerusalem in their lives, and many of them would want to offer an animal sacrifice in the temple, which they had never seen, only heard about, but now they were uh, in Jerusalem. They would want to offer an animal sacrifice for their sin, as well as needing a lamb for the Passover celebration. So the Jewish merchants uh, in Jerusalem set up all kinds of shops, or what they call booths, in the court of the Gentiles in order to accommodate these Jewish pilgrims that wanted to purchase animals for sacrifice and celebration. The celebration, of course, would be Passover. Now, guys, on the face of it, that didn't sound so bad. I'm not going to say that right off the bat they had terrible motives, all right? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, these merchants, and I'm going to believe that, you know, on the face of it, that could have started off as a very legitimate service and ministry to help these Jewish pilgrims, uh, you know, come into town. Because, look, uh, some of them came from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They started this pilgrimage months earlier. And so some of them had to take a, a, a boat or a ship to, to make the last leg of their pilgrimage. Be very, very difficult to drag an animal or two or three with you uh, on this journey. So merchants understood that. And again, it could have started off as just a simple, honest uh, way of helping these pilgrims, right? Uh, and so they would set up these booths where they would, first of all, sell animals for sacrifice, or if you needed to buy a lamb for the Passover meal, uh, they could accommodate you. But unfortunately, as often happens with ministries that start out well, the wrong people get their hands on it, begin to influence it, and the thing gets very bad. That, that's what happened. This ministry, which could have started out really good, uh, turned into a business. And then as leaders like Annas and then later Caiaphas got their hands on it, a corrupt business. I mean, the merchants working in cahoots with these priests, the high priest and then the, uh, the other priests, well, they began to rip people off for their animals, charging up to 10 times the going rate uh, for each of these animals. Now, let's just say in our economy, a couple of turtle doves cost two bucks on the street. You come into the temple and you had to pay 20 bucks, uh, even though the turtle doves were a lot less you know, back then. But the idea was that, and, and how would you feel if you're all excited about coming to Jerusalem for the first time in your life, right? The holy city, the temple of God, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And I just can't wait to get there. I've been waiting my whole life, saving pennies here and there. Finally, I scraped up enough to make the pilgrimage, right? And you got there. You're excited. You're all full of, uh, you're flushed with a sense of wanting to worship God. And you, you know, you, you, you want to buy an animal, a couple maybe turtle doves or a small lamb to offer. 
and they're ripping you off. It was you know, just charging these rates that were incredible, uh, and not incredible in a good way, right? And um, even if you did bring an animal, just say, well, I'll I, I bring my own. I've, I've heard people get rid I'm going to bring my own animal. You could bring your own animal there. And, of course, the law said the animal had to be without spot or blemish if you wanted to offer it to God. So they would have these priests, and they would take your animal, and they would go over it with a fine-tooth comb, inspect it, inspect it, until they found a little flower blemish, and they reject it. And you would be forced to buy one of their pre-approved kosher animals at the hyperinflated price. Again, it was a real hustle, a total ripoff, taking advantage of people that only wanted to worship God. And then there were the money changers. You see, Jewish law dictated that every Jew, uh, 19 years and above, uh, had to, was required to pay a half shekel as a temple tax every year. Okay, no problem. But the Jewish leadership mandated you had to give it in temple shekels. You already had to use a temple shekel. You couldn't use Roman currency because that was defiled. That was corrupt, defiled Gentile money. And if you want to give God an offering or pay your taxes, you've got to use the temple shekel. Okay, great. So we'll use the temple shekel. The only problem was the Sadducees and chief priests had set up money-changing tables all over the court of the Gentiles where Roman currency could be exchanged for the temple shekel, but, again, they were charging exorbitant exchange rates, again, ripping people off. Maybe you wanted to give 10 bucks to God, and by the time you changed that Roman currency into temple shekels, maybe it was worth 2 bucks in our economy. Again, this was just total corruption, total corruption. As these money changers were charging exorbitant exchange rates, the animal sellers were ripping people off on the price of an animal. Wicked men had gotten a hold of the worship of God. Folks, it's, nothing has changed. There are wicked men out there that have gotten taken hold of the worship of God and are using it to line their pockets. They believe that, you know, that... Um, Drawing close to God is a way to get rich. Paul said, stay away from those people. Please don't go to their churches and give them money. Don't watch them on TV and give money to their ministries. They're charlatans. They had hijacked the worship of God, turned it into a corrupt business, making money off the name of God and, trying, and ripping off the people of God who simply wanted to worship him. No wonder, and we're talking about Passover, but all the feasts were this way. But with regard to Passover, it's no wonder that the Holy Spirit said in John 2, verse 13, and 11, chapter 11, verse 55, the Holy Spirit called it the Passover of the Jews. He didn't call it what God called it in Exodus when he first instituted the Passover. In chapter 12, he called it the Lord's Passover. That's what happens when ministries are hijacked. It's no longer the Lord's church, it's that guy's church. Please don't call this Phil's church. Please don't do that. I don't want to get my hands on this church in the sense that I run it the way I want for my benefit. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And we have to understand that. When you serve here, you're not serving Phil Balmer, you're serving Jesus Christ. 
when you give here, you're not giving to me, you're giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything you do, everything you give, you have to give from that mindset because we try very hard never to take any money from God's people to use for anything other than ministry. I mean, that's just something we, we are obsessed with. Now, the, the real tragic thing with all this corruption, it was all in merchandising, it was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles. What was the court of the Gentiles? It was a place that had been set up, and there were supposed to be priests standing all over the place. And the idea was it would be a place where Gentiles could come. They couldn't go any further. They couldn't go into the court of the women, the court of the, of the men. Certainly couldn't go up into the court of the priests. Those were all punishable by death. So where did Gentiles go if they wanted to find out more about the God of Israel and maybe even convert to Judaism? They would come to the court of the Gentiles where they could ask priests questions. They could, uh, they could uh, proselytize to Judaism. And yet, when they got there, they saw all this corruption going on. Right there in the house of God, I wonder how many of them saw this, were completely disillusioned, turned around, and went home. I wonder how many seekers who come to God's house today and see all the greed and emphasis on money, constant emphasis on money, come to church to maybe find out about God. God's been tugging on their heart. They don't even know it, but they're interested. They're kind of hungry. Or maybe their life has fallen apart in some way and they realize, i got to get back to church. I need God. They come to a church and all they hear about is money. Get How much money you're going to give? You know, I, I had a guy come into the church years ago who left the church because they actually set up, it was kind of like going to the track. Yeah, I've been to the track before I got saved. I know what the track's like. In this particular church, they had tables set up all over the around the perimeter the $2 table, $5 table, I, I kid you not, $20 table, whatever. And when the off, time of the offering came, you had to get up and stand by the table according to how much you were going to give. So if you were only could afford $2 but didn't want to look like a real cheapskate, maybe you stand by the $10 table. You couldn't afford it. Maybe you wouldn't be able to put gas in your car that week. It's going back a ways. It's just disgusting. It's disgusting. And I wouldn't want to be in those men's shoes when they stand before God on the day of judgment. So the question is, because that was such a problem back then, how could the temple in Jesus' day, the house of God, right? Uh, how could it be a place of worship and prayers God designed it to be with this kind of corruption going on? What well, couldn't be? It was the Lord's house. The Lord had the clean house. And that's what we see Jesus do, right? He takes a whip. He drove out all the money, turned over the tables. <gasps> Jesus was losing it. That not that a sin? Anger? There's righteous anger. When, when God's name is being violated and dragged through the mud and you're angry about that, well, be angry and sin not. But Jesus could do something. It was his house. He started turning over the money changers. He started driving out those who sold the animals and those who were exchanging money. He quoted Isaiah 56, verse 7. It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Interesting, the Gospels tell us when Jesus drove out all the corruption, it makes it a point to say people came 
and prayed and worshiped God. Whenever God's house is cleansed, it becomes the place that God designed it to be, a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place of healing. That's another thing it said, people came and got healed. How could anything benefit a person with a church that is completely corrupt and obsessed with materialism? So Jesus cleaned house. And um, this is the point I was getting to. Sometimes I go, I go around the block to get next door. Here's the point I was making. Jesus drove out these, these, this merchandising. This was what the top day of the year or time of the year for these corrupt men who love money to make a lot of money. When Jesus drove out all the money changers and those who sold animals, all the merchandising stopped. All the money stopped flowing. And Annas was not happy about it. He was furious. And he purposed in his heart that he was going to get Jesus for this. He was determined he was going to get Jesus and get rid of Jesus. So that was somewhat behind this trial. There's some bad blood in Annas' heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he has an opportunity to settle the score. But Annas had bigger problems at that moment than Jesus. Now, you understand what I mean. At that moment, ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to be Annas' biggest problem for all eternity as he stands in front of the Lord of glory and has to give an account. But at this moment... Jesus, believe it or not, was not Annas' top problem. It was the Roman government. You say, how so? Well, in about the year 15, Annas fell out of favor with the Roman government. And they, they removed him. Now, he was pretty well connected. And you know, powerful people don't go quietly into the night. They usually network. They usually have a lot of things in place. A lot of people they have bribed. And so Annas had five sons. And so he bribed a Roman official to have one of his sons installed as high priest. So Annas could still be the power behind the scene. Well, eventually that kid messed up. I don't know what, fell out of it. Rome took him out of power. Annas slipped a few bucks to somebody else, got his other kid in as high priest, right? That kid messed up. This is quite a family. Eventually all five of his sons were high priests. And eventually all fell out of favor like their old man fell out of favor with the Roman government were removed. Not to worry. See, Annas had a, a son-in-law named Caiaphas. And so again, he greased the wheels a little bit and somehow got Caiaphas installed as the new high priest who was now the official high priest in Jesus' day. The people, the people still looked at Annas as the legitimate or legal high priest. Why? How? Jewish law says that when a man was appointed to the office of high priest, it was for life. It was a lifelong position. Therefore, Rome, in the eyes of Orthodox Jews back then, Rome had no right to take a high priest out of his office, one that God said was to rule or to, uh, to conduct his ministry for life. So they didn't really respect Caiaphas, they, they, they always had in their minds Annas being the true high priest. And so they brought Jesus first to Annas. Annas. 
where John tells us the religious trial of Jesus began. Again, verse 13 tells us they brought Jesus to Annas. And then I want you to jump down to verse 19. I want to read to you the next few verses out of the NLT, because I think it makes it very clear. So verse 19, inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. And Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have been preaching regularly in the synagogues and in the temple where the people gather. Yeah, for three and a half years. But the last week of his life, he put the cross nonstop, nonstop in the temple area. He said, um, I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Jesus, I don't get the impression all he's being combative or sarcastic or he's just saying why are you asking me what I teach I mean it's common knowledge when Jesus answered this one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face is it is is that the way you uh, to answer the high priest he demanded Jesus replied if I said anything wrong you know I just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect control you know how Paul said, God will smite you, you whited wall, when he was standing before these very guys? And he said a few things that, you know, they didn't like, and one of the police standing there wrapped him in the mouth. And, and Paul just, you know, the flesh came out. You know, may God strike you, you whitewashed wall. See, that would have been me. See, I know that would have been me. I, I would have reacted in the flesh, you know? I mean, you're, out, you're there talking, all of a sudden, wham, you get smashed in the face. I would have been in the flesh immediately. Not Jesus. I believe he was the epitome of calmness and love. He's not railing. He's saying basically, look, if I violated the law, show me in the law what I violated. But if I'm speaking truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. I was telling first service, I don't know this for sure, but I know the way Jewish families operated back then. And a lot of times you had the main uh, family uh, member, the, the, usually the patriarch, who, if he was wealthy especially, owned a house and uh, with a courtyard. And then around the courtyard, they would start to build um, apartments or, uh, or small condos, we would say. And the whole family lived right there. I kind of think, from what the text says, that after they were done questioning Jesus at Annas' house, they went across the courtyard to where Caiaphas lived. I think it was right there. I could be wrong. I think it was right there, though, because it doesn't seem like they had to travel too far, okay? But let me say this. While Jesus was undergoing the first phase of his religious trial, first before Annas and then Caiaphas, listen, Peter was also undergoing a time of testing and trial of his own. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Now this other disciple, unnamed disciple, has caused a lot of speculation. Who was it? Many say it was Joseph of Arimathea because he was wealthy, well-connected. He would have known the high priest. Okay, maybe. Others say, well, no, it was Nicodemus. He was a 
Pharisee that came to Jesus by night, <laughs> Nick at night, that's where all that came from. Nick at night came to Jesus and t- talked to him. And, Google it, you'll see. No. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he comes to Jesus. He was a very well-known Pharisee. Could have been Nic- Nicodemus, they say. I kind of think it was John the Apostle. I kind of think it was John the Apostle. People say, well, wouldn't John have named himself if he was the one? I mean, he wrote the gospel. Why not say it was me? John never calls himself by name in his gospel. He, he always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And don't think that that was a haughty thing. Like, I'm the only disciple Jesus really loved. No, I kind of think it was like in awe. John, a disciple that Jesus loved. I can't get over how Jesus would love me, but he did. That kind of thing, right? That's how we, we should all think of Jesus, that in awe that he, he loves us. Um, now, there are those who have problems with that interpretation. That it was John. Why do you have problems with that? Well, because they, um, they have a hard time believing that a simple Galilean fisherman, as John could have known, I'm quoting the text, known, could have been known to the high priest. In the Greek, it comes across as not just a casual acquaintance. John and the high priest really knew each other. I'm not saying they were best buds. I'm not saying they went out to lunch. I'm just saying he, they really knew each other. How is it that a simple Galilean fisherman could know the high priest on that level? And they have a problem with John being the other disciple. One commentator put this way. I think it was pretty good. He said, and I quote, It must be remembered that fishermen were entrepreneurs, not common laborers at the bottom of the social spectrum. John's father's fishing business was large enough for him to have hired servants working for him. Mark 1, 19 and 20 tells us that. According to the apocryphal gospel of Hebrews, the apostle John used to deliver fish to the high priest's house while he was still working for his father. Whatever the case may be, John was sufficiently well-known that he was allowed to enter with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter, however, was not well-known at all, so he was standing out, left standing outside. Realizing what had happened, the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper, who was a little slave girl, and, and, uh, and, and brought Peter in. She opened the door then and let uh, Peter come in. The author says, uh, that John was able to vouch for Peter shows again he was uh, well known in the high priest's household. Peter's desire to be with Jesus overcame his fear and he entered the courtyard. End quote. Other disciples had r- run for their lives. They were hiding because they really thought Roman soldiers were coming for them next. Peter followed at a distance and we, we criticized Peter for that. Well, why didn't you just follow right there? That's how you get into problems, Peter. We'll see that next time. He followed at a distance. Well, don't follow Jesus at a distance. But let's give Peter a little credit. He didn't run and hide like the other guys. He wanted to see what was going on. His love for Jesus, although he had messed up, his love for Jesus was really strong and that he wanted to see what was going to happen to his Lord, right? And again, as I said, while Jesus was undergoing his trial in front of Annas and then Caiaphas, Peter was also undergoing a trial of his own. Now, when they let Peter in to the courtyard of, the, of Caiaphas's house, verse 17 tells us, Then the servant girl, the Greek is slave girl, a little slave girl, who kept the door said to Peter, 
are uh, you are not also one of this one of this man's disciples are you and peter said i am not verse 24 then annas sent him bound to caiaphas the high priest now simon peter stood and warmed himself by the enemy's fire okay bad thing to do um therefore they said to him you are not also one of his disciples are you and he denied it and said i am not one of the servants of the high priest a relative of him whose ear peter cut off said did i not see you in the garden with him peter then denied again and immediately the rooster crowed turn to matthew 26 because at this point matthew provides a little more detail into what actually happened matthew 26 and let's pick it up in verse 69 now peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying you also were with jesus of galilee but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. Girl, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, uh, saying, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely, you also are one of them, one of his disciples, uh, for your speech betrays you. See, they were from Galilee. That's where Jesus really gathered his, most of his disciples. Uh, that's where he conducted most of his ministry up in the Galilee region. That was not the big city, sophisticated. It was, you know, more of a rural area where fishermen and others would, would uh, live and, and ply their trade and all. Um, but those people that lived up in the Galilee had an accent. Isn't that amazing that in Chicago we have no accent, but everybody else does around the country? Don't you find that a little odd? I, anyways, you know, it's like when somebody is from the south, and you, know, and you run into them up here, and they start talking to you. Well, you know they're from the south because they got that beautiful. I love southern accents. I think they're, they're neat. Uh, but you can tell they're from the south, right? Well, the Galileans had, uh, as some have called it, a Galilean brogue or dialect. So these guys were picking up on this. Don't tell us you're not from up that way. We can hear your voice. You've got that, 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 you know, that Galilean accent going on. Well, by this time, Peter is, you know, he's, he's just had enough. And um, verse 74, then he began to curse and swear, not profanity. Hang in there saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, I believe he sobbed from the bottom of his heart. That sob when you lose a, a dear loved one, a spouse or a child, you're so brokenhearted, you can't even verbalize it. It just comes out in heaves of sobbing. I think that's Peter was that broken. I really do. And the thing that must have really humiliated him and devastated him was that after he assured the Lord earlier in the evening, because Jesus said, before the night's out, all you guys are going to be uh, stumbled because of me. 
And Peter said, although these guys are stumbled, I'll never be stumbled because of your word. And that's when Jesus said, and Mark's the only gospel that tells us he said uh, the rooster is going to crow twice. But uh, he said to Peter, Peter, before the night is out, before uh, he said, uh, before the night is out, uh, before the, the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And he said, Lord, I would die before I would ever do that. And so now, not only has he broken his promise, tough guy Peter, big burly fisherman, he doesn't break the promise and deny his Lord in front of a tough Roman soldier, but first of all, in front of two little slave girls. That was probably very humiliating to Peter. With the third accusation, Peter began to call down curses on himself, and he swore with an oath that he didn't even know Jesus. One author said, The calling of curses upon oneself in Jewish culture was a legal way of seeking to affirm one's own innocence. If no calamity followed, you called on curses on yourself. And if no calamity followed, the person, in this case Peter, would be presumed innocent. Guys, as Peter publicly denied the Lord for the third time, immediately the rooster crowed for the second time. That triggered in Peter's mind the words of Jesus, again, Mark 14, 30. Before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. At this point, Luke tells us something that happened next that no other gospel writer tells us. Luke tells us that immediately after Peter denied the Lord for the third time, that where Jesus, that Jesus from where he was standing in Caiaphas' house, facing Caiaphas, as Caiaphas was, you know, interrogating him. When Peter denied the Lord for the third time and the rooster crowed, Jesus turned, looked out into the courtyard at Peter, and I believe their eyes met. I believe their eyes met. Jesus just stopped and looked at Peter and then turned back. What kind of look did Jesus give Peter? We're not told. We're left to speculate. Was it a look of anger? Was it a look of disappointment? Was it a look of sadness? Let me ask you this. What kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter that night? Why is that important that you ask me that question? Because whatever look you think Jesus gave Peter that morning when Peter failed his Lord is the same kind of look you believe he looks at you with when you fail your Lord. Let me tell you what I believe about the way Jesus looked at Peter that day. First of all, I don't believe Jesus looked at Peter with a look of anger. The Bible tells us that God's anger is reserved for those living in rebellion against him, those who refuse to repent for their sins, and not for those who try to live for him but sometimes fail. God never, ever gets angry with his kids who are trying to live for him but sometimes fail. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Secondly, I don't believe Jesus looked at Peter with a look of disappointment. Well, why do I feel that way? 
Because for God to be disappointed means that our actions, listen, took him by surprise. He didn't expect that from us. You know, the whole idea behind disappointment is you have certain expectations about people. And in your mind, you have appointed them up here. This kind of character, this kind of level of character and so on. And when they don't, don't live up to that level of expectation, you're disappointed. Your opinion of them comes down. It's impossible to disappoint God because he knew everything we were ever going to do before he ever created us, right? I mean, Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb, uh, was a lamb slain from, the, from before the foundation of the world. So before God ever made the world, he knew we, who we were going to be, how we were going to blow it. And in the mind of God, Jesus was already hanging on Calvary's cross because God knew us. I mean, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Jesus told Peter that, Peter, before the night is out, not only will you be offended by me, you're going to deny me three times. Now, why did Jesus say that to Peter? To crush him? No, I think to help him. First of all, to help not to put confidence in his own strength doesn't, you know, we all have to learn that. We're all prone to make God promises we can't keep. And this is the problem. Where, where, you know, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give this up or that up or whatever. I promise, Lord, you watch. And we often can't come through. And God knows that. That's why Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm what? Strong. I think God wanted to encourage, Jesus wanted to encourage Peter not to make promises he couldn't keep in his own strength. But also I believe that Jesus told Peter in advance what, what he was going to do to prepare him to soften the blow of his failure by teaching Peter and all of us by extension that our sins never surprise God. Grieve him, yes, surprise him, no. And number three, I don't believe the look Jesus gave Peter that day was a look of sadness. The kind of look you would give somebody who is just a perpetual problem person, a hopeless loser. Has anybody got a cousin or an uncle? And they're just a hope. You love them, but they're a hopeless loser. No matter how many times they get chances, they always blow it. They can never finish what they start. They're always messing up. You know, and they make you these promises, but they never come through, right? They fail time and time again. And, and honestly, as you come to a point in your life, it's like, you know what? They're never going to amount to anything. They're just hopeless losers. Some people fit into the category of hopeless loser. And Uncle Ben, he's that guy or whoever. You know what? We often think of ourselves that way. I want you to think about this. Often there are times when we blow it and keep blowing it, especially when it comes to some area of bondage that you really want to be free of, alcohol, maybe some drugs of some kind, pornography. I don't know what it is. And you really want to be free of it. You're really trying hard, but you keep falling to it. And eventually you give up on yourself. You think you're a hopeless loser. 
and you really kind of bring that attitude toward God into your prayer life and say, Lord, you know what? Why don't you just give up on me? I'm never going to amount to anything. I can't get this Christian thing down. I'm always messing up. Lord, just forget about me. I've given up on myself. Please, just give up on me. Not realizing or forgetting, I should say, that we are all a work in what? Progress. And as Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Guys, we are a, a work in progress. And we're going to mess up. We're going to stumble. Hopefully we're stumbling and messing up a little less now than when we first got saved. But the idea is that it's wrong to look at our walk with the Lord at any given point in our journey and say, because we haven't learned to run the marathon yet, and I'm just only walking in my walk with God, I'm a hopeless loser. That is not true. We are all growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I don't think, first of all, Jesus gave Peter a look of anger or disappointment or sadness like he was a hopeless loser. You say, okay, then, Pastor, well, what kind of look do you think? Jesus gave Peter that morning. My take, guys, what I really and sincerely believe, I believe it was a look of loving compassion. The kind of look a parent would give a child who is learning to walk but keeps on falling, and you know how that little kids get frustrated. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll read to you what God said about Israel in their youth. Hosea 11, verses 1 to 3, and then we'll throw in verse 8. God speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and I, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand, like a parent will take a little child by the hands and just walk over the child and teach the little child how to walk. God said, I did that with Israel. I, I nurtured them. I loved them. But he doesn't know Israel or even care that it was I who took care of him. Verse 8, Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. In light of everything they did, God says, I can't give up on you. I love you too much. I'm not going to give up on you. Hey, let me just say this. If the Lord can forgive Israel their rebellion under law, don't you think God can forgive you your sins under grace now that you're a child of his? Look, let me say this, and you know it, but let me, it's good to hear it. God loves you. Good heavens, hasn't he proven it? Paul said, you know, if you ever doubt God's love for you, look at the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. He is not mad at you. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. God loves you and is not mad at you. He is for you against sin, not against you for your sin. And the sooner we realize that and really get it, tattooed onto our brain where we no longer let the devil condemn us for our weaknesses and failings, 
the stronger we're going to be as believers because then again we'll walk in the reality of what Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I mean, I, I, I tell people all the time who are racked with condemnation and guilt because they're messing up in some way. Look, God knew you before he even created you. He knew every sin you were ever going to commit. And he still loved you and he still wanted you to be his child. And now that you are his child, he's not going to condemn you because you're weak and sometimes you fail and fall in your walk with him. I mean, Paul the Apostle made this clear in Romans chapter 8 when he asked the question, why would God condemn the very people he sent his son Jesus to die for? Those who are now his children. Look, God knows our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses better than we do as he demonstrated with Peter. Peter thought he was a lot stronger than he really was. Jesus knew the truth, obviously. I'll tell you what, God knows us, and he's not putting any confidence in my strength. I know that. Even though I like to try to think I can handle things, I can't. Look, I won't have you turn to Psalm 8, and we'll bring it so close, but Psalm 8, starting, I'm sorry, Psalm 103, verse 8, start with. Psalm 103, starting with verse 8. The psalmist said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the Lord pities his children, uh, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities the, those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Again, God knows that we are weak and prone to fail. And he's not condemning us for our failures because as his children, he actually uses our failures to teach us how to walk with him better in the future. As somebody once uh, has written, I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all spoiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Now, do better now, my child. It's a growing experience, guys. God loves us. Remember, you and I are a work in progress. And God never, ever doesn't finish the work he starts. We are a work in progress. Imagine that God is stamped on your forehead, work in progress. And every time you look at yourself in the mirror, imagine that's what you've got in your forehead. <laughs> He's going to see the work through, all the way to completion. So be encouraged and draw close to your loving Father in heaven, every day for strength. And remember what John said. I love this. 1 John 3.20 If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. John said that to encourage us. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. It was John's way of saying, 
And we'll close with this, but it was John's way of saying sometimes a child of God can be overly hard on themselves. Where they set the bar so high, they begin to have unrealistic expectations in their walk with the Lord. To read the testimony of Martin Luther. That was his testimony before he got saved, trying to please God by the works of the law. You raise the bar so high and have such great expectations of how you should live as a Christian. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to live all the way for Jesus. But sometimes we have expectations so high that they border on perfection. That's the devil. So that any sin, no matter how small and unintended, becomes the justification to condemn ourselves as worthless failures. Let me just say this to you. The difference between those that God uses greatly and those that God uses not so, not so much is not their failures. We're all going to fail. you got to write it down. We're all going to fail. And sometimes, though, the biggest failures that we have seen in the history of the church, right, have gone on to be some of the greatest champions of the faith. The difference isn't the failures, guys. It's that when one fails, they lay there and give up. And when the other fails, they fall, they get up. And they repent, they learn from their mistakes, and they move forward in their walk and ministry for the Lord. How about you? How about you this morning? Maybe this week you committed, you know, for the 900,000th time, that one besetting sin. And honestly, you're feeling really defeated, discouraged, demoralized. Where are you? The question is not, is your life with God over? No, it's not. The question is, you failed. Okay, join the club. Are you going to lie there and give up? Or are you going to stand in the grace of God and get up? Just quickly. When Peter failed the Lord by denying him for the third time. He went out and wept bitterly. He was broken. And he was in, uh, not hiding, but it was, he was, you know, he had um, just went somewhere just to be alone. Isolation. What was going through Peter's mind those three days? From the time he denied his Lord for the third time until the morning of the resurrection. What do you think Peter was thinking? I think he was thinking he committed the unpardonable sin. I think he was thinking that his relationship with Jesus was over. How could Jesus ever love him again? How could Jesus ever use him? I think, I think he probably thought, my ministry is done. I'll go back to fishing because I have committed the unpardonable sin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the first person the Bible tells us he went to see was, was Peter to restore him. You see, Peter's failure in denying his Lord three times didn't end his ministry. It really began his ministry. What do I mean? 
God can't use people who are self-confident, self-sufficient, though these deny you, I will never deny you because I'm stronger, I'm tougher, I'm this, I'm that. God can't use people like that. They're too full of pride. So he has to let us fall and fall hard until we're broken. And then we can walk in the truth, as Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm not making God promises in my flesh. Peter didn't realize, guys, when he was in seclusion for those three days, weeping, broken, thinking that his ministry was over, he didn't realize that his greatest days of ministry were yet future. That's the lesson to take from this. Not that Peter blew it. We all blew it. It was that when Peter blew it, he didn't realize that by denying his Lord, not a good thing, obviously, but breaking his promise that he would never do anything to deny his Lord. When he violated that promise, he was broken. And God said, now, Peter, now I can use you because I can only use broken vessels. It was Mary when she broke the alabaster flask of fragrant oil that the fragrance filled the house. It's only when we're broken does the fragrance of worship fill our homes and our marriages and our families and so on. We have to be broken before we can be made whole. And that's a strange concept, but you all know what I mean. So come on back. We will continue, God willing, next week looking at this portion of John's gospel, Jesus on trial. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord, that you happen to love uh, hopeless losers. We thank you for that. And But, you, Lord, you have a way of taking hopeless losers, those who have been cast out into the refuse heap of humanity, and you're a garbage picker. You're, you love to pick garbage uh, and then make it into something beautiful. And that's our testimony. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.